Hello, I'm Nancy Guthrie. Welcome to this study of the Old Testament historical books. These books trace the history of the people of God from the time Joshua led them into the Promised Land, through the years of having no king and then having a series of kings, through being exiled from the Promised Land and then finally returning to the Promised Land where they waited for the coming of the true king. Now, I hope you've already gotten your own copy of the companion book, The Son of David, which you'll need for completing your preparation for coming together to watch the video. Each week before you come, you'll want to complete the personal Bible study section of that week's lesson so that you'll have the background you need to grasp what I'm going to be teaching. The personal Bible study is designed to get you grounded in the big idea of the book, not to master every detail. The teaching chapter in the book contains the same material I'll be presenting on this video. So you have several options. You can read the chapter before you come as a preview, or you can just wait and listen to me present the teaching on the video, or you may find that it's helpful for you to go back and read through the chapter to gain greater clarity after you've watched the video. You do whatever works best for you. We begin today actually in the New Testament at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus began his ministry by announcing, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what did he mean by that? And what does that mean for you and me? Let's find out together as we begin our study, listening to our true king tell us about his kingdom. I smiled the other day when I got a tweet from our friend Gabe DeGarmo. It was a picture of his wife and daughter getting ready to board a flight to Orlando. And it said, watch out, Disney. I'm on my way with two more princesses. Now, I didn't grow up immersed in as much Disney princess culture as today's children. The magical world of Disney, which was the only place you could see Disney movies outside of the theater when I was growing up. It aired on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock. And of course, we were always heading out to Sunday night church when it came on. So heaven to me at that point in my life was a Sunday night when for some reason we got to stay home from church and indulge ourselves in Disney magic. But of course, everything's changed since my childhood. First came VHS and then DVD and now digital downloads. I mean, even in the SUV, on our way to school or soccer practice, we can inundate our sons and daughters with handsome princes and beautiful princesses. And what do our daughters want to be on a dress-up day? Well, Disney princesses, of course. In fact, I've noticed that some little girls insist on wearing their princess gowns and tiaras pretty much every day of the year. And really, who wouldn't want to be a princess? with perfect hair and an 18-inch waist and a closet full of ball gowns living in a kingdom with a handsome prince and a cadre of servants. I think we can all agree we'd be up for that. But most of us at one time or another realize that all of our wishing upon a star has proven to have no power to make it so. Perhaps the reason that stories of kings and kingdoms capture our interest is because they reflect the childlike longings we've trained ourselves to deny. 
perhaps there is something deep inside us that knows there really is a kingdom in which we could be cherished by the prince and protected by the king. A kingdom in which no one has to be afraid or go hungry, but everyone enjoys peace and safety and perfect love. Friends, this is not just the fodder of fairy tales or simply escapist denial. It is the hope the Bible holds out to us. The story of the Bible is really the story of a kingdom that you and I are invited to enter into and experience in part now and in fullness forever. It's the story of the true king who rules over his people with perfect love and justice. The story of the true king and his kingdom begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the Bible begins by telling us that God is the majestic king over the world. His kingdom is the heaven and earth he created from nothing. And Adam and Eve lived in a perfect garden paradise called Eden as the creator king's loyal subjects, enjoying his provision and his presence right there with them. So here is the kingdom of God as it once was. God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule, his clear instruction to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and to eat freely of every tree in the garden except for one. In fact, the kingdom of God throughout the Bible and throughout history is always this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people, Adam and Eve, lived in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and everything about it was good, perfectly good, until they rebelled against God's rule. A rival kingdom invaded God's kingdom in the form of a serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to reject God as their king. He told them that they could be kings in their own kingdom and that their king was withholding something good from them, but it was a lie. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against the loving rule of their king, everything that was once so beautiful became broken. They were forced out of God's kingdom of Eden because, you see, no one who refuses to live in obedience to the king has a place in his kingdom. But God the good king was not content to make peace with this ongoing alienation. And so he began working out his plan to restore his people to his kingdom. And he did this by declaring war, not on those who had rebelled against him, but against sin and death. And ever since then, two opposing forces have been at war in the world. The kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Satan, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. The Bible makes it clear that God is accomplishing this restoration of his kingdom, not through some instantaneous edict, but through a lengthy historical process. God began working out his plan to bring his people back to his place to live under his rule by calling one man, Abraham to himself, making incredible, undeserved promises to him. 
God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great people and that he would give this people a place, the land of Canaan, where they would live under his loving rule. And when this family grew and was enslaved outside the place God intended for them, he brought them out and gave them his law so that they would know how to live under his rule in his land. This was to be a land flowing with milk and honey, reminiscent of the garden paradise God's people once enjoyed. And if they obeyed him there, they would live there enjoying its abundance forever. This is the part of God's story we're going to focus in on in this study. The kingdom established in the promised land of Canaan has much to reveal to us in shadow form about the larger kingdom that God is bringing and the greater king who sits on its throne. In Joshua, as we witness Moses' successor lead the people of God into rest in the land that God gave to them, we'll see how the greater Joshua, Jesus, leads his people into rest. In Judges, we'll see how God used a series of flawed deliverers to save his people when they cried out to him, all of whom point to a more perfect deliverer who was yet to come. We'll see that Jesus saves people who are bent on doing what is right in their own eyes and transforms us into people who are right in God's eyes. In the book of Ruth, we'll meet Boaz, who shows in shadow form how our kinsman redeemer Jesus will cover us with his protection, fill us with his provision, and pay the required cost to secure our stake in God's kingdom land. In 1 Samuel, we'll witness a boy from Bethlehem, David, go out alone against the great enemy who taunts God's people with threats of enslavement, Goliath. And with one smooth stone, David will crush Goliath's head. And we will see that he foreshadows another boy born in Bethlehem, who will go out alone against the enemy of sin and death that taunts God's people with threats of eternal enslavement. And we'll see that on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus crushed the head of our great enemy. In 2 Samuel, we'll look at David, the king God set on the earthly throne over his people we'll see in him shadows of his greater son who is even now seated on David's royal throne in heaven and will one day descend to reign in the new Jerusalem forever and ever. In 1 Kings, we'll take a tour of the golden era of Israel during King Solomon's reign when everything was as it should be and the whole world marveled at Israel's abundance and the wisdom of her king. We'll see glimpses of the way the kingdom of God will one day be when we have peace on every side and the whole world streams to the throne of our king to give him tribute. In 2 Kings, we'll trace the kings who sat on David's throne after him, most of whom had no heart for God like David had. And it will become clear that a greater king was needed, a king who would rule in righteousness, not rebellion, a king who would be faithful, 
not idolatrous, a king who would love God's word rather than ignore it. In stark contrast to all of the kings who sat on Israel's throne, we'll see the king of kings and lord of lords who sits on David's throne, before whom the whole world will one day bow. In Ezra, who taught the scriptures to God's people, we'll see shadows of the one who was the fulfillment of all that the scriptures teach. In Nehemiah, who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem using ruined stones, we'll see the shadow of the one who is building his church even now with living stones, the lives of those who have been reclaimed from the rubble of sin. And finally, in Esther, we'll see echoes of the one who, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life, interceded to accomplish the deliverance of God's people. As we work our way through this history of Israel, we'll witness the people of God repeatedly prove rebellious to God's rule and ultimately be exiled from the place that God had given to them. Because remember, no one who refuses to live in obedience to the king has a place in his kingdom. Still, God's commitment remained to have a people for himself, living in the place he has provided under his loving rule. In exile, a faithful remnant hung on to God's promise sent through his prophets that he would not only bring the people back, but that he would also come and reign as their king. Through his prophet Isaiah, God told them what the coming king's government would be like. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The prophet Micah told them where this king would come from. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And the prophet Zechariah spoke of his entrance into the royal city. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When the faithful remnant of God's people was able to return to the land, they waited there for the greater king and the greater kingdom to come. And then the king came. We read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, the kingdom of heaven broke into the realm of earth. Have you ever been outside and it's raining and yet you can see the sun breaking through the clouds somewhere in the sky? That's a picture of this reality. The incarnation of Christ 
was the glory of heaven breaking through the veil that separates heaven and earth. All that the kingdom of Israel had been pointing toward for centuries was becoming a reality with the coming of the true king. Yet Jesus didn't really seem like a king, at least the kind of king the Israelites were expecting. I mean, kings are born in palaces, not in cattle stalls. Kings expect to be served, not to serve. Kings robe themselves in royal garments, not with a towel so that they can wash everyone's feet. Kings are crowned with gold, not with thorns. Clearly, Jesus was not going to be a king, and his was not going to be a kingdom like the kings and the kingdoms they were used to. This became evident when Jesus stood up and began to teach. The paradoxical wisdom of the kingdom of God he spoke of was quite different from the accepted wisdom in the kingdoms of the world. He said that the greatest people in God's kingdom are those who serve. He said we should love our enemies and that it's more blessed to give than to receive. He said that the only way to save your life is to lose it. Jesus taught people to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do you think his will is done in heaven? In his heavenly throne room, all creatures gladly serve him with a glad yes, yes, yes. There's no pause to determine whether or not his command suits their preferences or if it will fit in their busy schedules. And of course, it's not at all like that here on earth. Jesus taught us to pray that this disparity between heaven and earth would be eradicated. And one day, it will be. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was constantly pulling back the curtain to reveal what the kingdom of God will be like when his kingdom comes in all of its glorious fullness. He healed those with diseases, showing that sickness and disease have no place in his forever kingdom. He commanded the demons to depart because nothing evil will have its way forever in his kingdom. He stilled the sea, showing that all nature submits to his command in his kingdom. He fed multitudes, revealing the abundant satisfaction to be found in his kingdom. He raised Lazarus to life, previewing the day when the bodies of all of his kingdom subjects will be raised to resurrection life. In the obedience of his life, Jesus revealed the perfect righteousness that permeates his kingdom. And by his sin-atoning death, Jesus proved that sin and death no longer get the last word in his kingdom. In his resurrection, he previewed the future hope of those who will populate his kingdom. And in his ascension, he entered into the current realm of his kingdom. Jesus came telling us exactly how we should respond to his kingdom at hand. He did not say, follow my example. Try real hard to live like me. Instead, he said, repent and believe in the gospel. 
So what does that mean? To repent is much more than shedding tears over your past. It is to identify your sin and sinfulness and turn your back on it so that you can pursue Christ. It's to turn away from greed and toward gospel-empowered generosity. It's to turn away from always giving in to lust without a thought and toward battling against it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to turn away from your determination to run your own life the way you please to saying, Jesus is Lord and really mean it. That's repentance. To believe is first to know the content of the gospel, that anyone can be right with God, acquitted, forgiven, restored, adopted, through trusting faith in Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection. But to believe is more than just knowing this. It's to come under it, to rest in it, to take it into the very center of your life. Jesus comes to us as our true king, saying to each of us, repent and believe the gospel. And so I have to ask you, as we get started in this study, have you ever come to repentance? Life in the kingdom is not about self-improvement, trying real hard to become a better person or a more spiritual person. To be in the kingdom of God is to recognize that your sin is an offense to the king and to choose to abandon it so that you might choose and pursue and please the king. Have you believed going beyond just knowledge about Christ to putting your whole confidence in him? You know, if you walk away from this study having learned everything there is to know about the history books of the Old Testament. And you never turn toward the king in repentance and belief. All of the time you spent increasing your knowledge will only serve to make you even more responsible for your defiant rebellion or informed apathy toward the king. While the kingdom was at hand, at the first coming of the king. It didn't come in power, but rather in weakness. On Pentecost, God poured out his spirit on his people, empowering his people to take the gospel of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And today, the kingdom of God is spreading across the world as the gospel goes out and is embraced by those who repent and believe. The kingdom of God is no longer bound up with one nation in one country. That was a picture of things to come. God's kingdom now comes as people bow to Jesus as king. At its simplest, the kingdom is where the king is. It's where he rules and reigns. And as he rules and reigns in your life, that's the kingdom as he rules and reigns amongst his people, the church, that's the kingdom. Everywhere his will is done, everywhere his justice is accomplished, his righteousness is lived out, his gospel is loved, is the kingdom. Everywhere his subjects are saved by his hand, 
Everywhere his enemies are vanquished by his power. Everywhere his commandments are obeyed. That is the kingdom. So if you want to know how to enter the kingdom of God, it is to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life, in my heart, on this earth, in the same way that your will is gladly done by all of the angels of heaven. It is to say, Jesus is Lord, Lord over my choices, Lord over my finances, Lord over my future. Jesus is Lord over this family. He is Lord over this church. He is Lord over my company. He is Lord over this land. To become a Christian is to ask God to set up his throne as the supreme king of our hearts. We don't receive Christ as Savior and then at some later point, as it suits us, make him Lord. Jesus is Lord. Calling upon Christ for salvation is bowing the knee to his kingship. It's never anything less than that because he is never anything less than the true king. What saves people is the grace of the king who reigns over them. So if being a citizen of the kingdom of God is welcoming the rule and reign of Christ, it makes no sense that someone who has truly come under the loving rule of King Jesus would continue to live a life pursuing ongoing rebellion against the ways of the king and the kingdom. But we must also admit that we all have territory in our lives, in our hearts, that we have yet to cede to the rule of our king. Areas about which we say to our king, everything else in my life you can have your way with, but not this. <laughs> this I will continue to manage and control. Oh, how we need our good king to refuse to surrender his claim to any and every area of our lives how we need his kingdom to come in all of its loving rule. And it does come to us even now as we live in this world as citizens of heaven. For now, the kingdom of God is God's people, all of those joined to Christ, living on earth as citizens of heaven in God's place. The temple being built with living stones, the church. And under God's rule, the blessings of the new covenant. For now, the kingdom of God is a community of sinners washed clean by the blood of the king. Seeking to please the king, longing for the return of the king. And evidently, it's not only redeemed people who long for the return of the king. All of creation longs for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness and glory. We read in Romans 8, For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
all of creation is crying out in longing for the king to come, for the kingdom to come. Because while the kingdom of God is here now, it's not here in the way it will be one day. Because for now, we live in an in-between time, in between the time Jesus established his kingdom and the time when he takes his throne and exercises his authority over all things. For now, every skirmish with that same old sin, every bout of cancer, every corrupt politician, every report of abuse, every picture of a hungry child, every breakup of another family, it just increases our longing for our king to come and set things right for good. We want our king to come in justice, punishing evil and rewarding good. We want his reign of grace and truth to spread throughout the world, throughout the entire creation. And one day, it will. One day, his kingdom will come. His will will be done on this earth in the same way it's done in heaven. Heaven will come to earth. When the king of heaven comes to earth, when Jesus comes again, God's kingdom will be completely restored, even better than it once was in Eden. In what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. God's people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will live in God's place, the new heaven and the new earth under God's rule, where we will worship him around his throne. Do you sometimes wonder what God's doing in the world? Where this world is headed? The goal of God's work in history is this. His kingdom come. His will done on earth as it is in heaven. When his kingdom comes in all of its fullness, all will acknowledge his lordship. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is God's by right will be his in fact. God's people, all of those whose names are written in the book of life, will be in God's place, which will extend to every corner of the earth under the rule of the King of Kings. No more rebellion will be tolerated when his kingdom comes. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, will be destroyed forever by King Jesus. So that a loud voice in heaven will be heard saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. No more sickness will be tolerated when his kingdom comes. No more mental illness. No more birth defects. No more metastasized cancer. No more diabetes. No more drug addiction. No injustice 
will be perpetrated when his kingdom comes. No ethnic cleansing, no economic oppression, no sexual abuse, no sinful patterns will be accommodated when his kingdom comes. No gossipy comments, no envious thoughts, no lustful looks. No natural disasters will bring catastrophe when his kingdom comes. No one will drown in a tsunami or starve in a famine. When his kingdom comes, there will be no darkness, only glorious light, no more tears, only ongoing joy, no more death, only never-ending life. Your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. My friend Gabe sent another tweet a couple of days after he sent the tweet warning Disney that he was on his way with two more princesses. It was a picture of the crowd walking down Main Street at Disney World, and it said, Looking forward to the day I get to be in a real kingdom with the king. Me too, Gabe. Because while it will be wonderful to live in a kingdom where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, the best thing about the kingdom will be the king seated on the throne at the very center. The face that will capture our attention will be the face of the king. And that's why it makes no sense for someone who wants nothing to do with Jesus to say they want to go to heaven and that they have every right to go to heaven. It is the presence of Jesus, the king, that makes heaven what it is now and what it will be when his kingdom comes to earth. And his kingdom is going to come. He is going to come. In the last chapter of the Bible, we hear him speaking, saying, Behold, I am coming soon. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The son of David is going to come and reign. And throughout this study of the Old Testament historical books, we'll have the opportunity to see more clearly the kind of king who is coming to reign over us forever. There is only one kingdom that proves true. One kingdom that will last forever. One kingdom with a king on the throne worthy of worship and able to reign over this world and reign in our hearts in true righteousness. And it's not wishing upon a star that will make this dream come true. It is bowing before this great king and gladly coming under his righteous rule. His reign in your life begins with the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come.